Welcome again to the Conservative Historian Podcast. This one entitled, Historical Crises. The date, April 2021, and my name, Belisarius Avis. The Roman Emperor Diocletian is one of those names that would have been familiar to the founders of our republic. There was continuous turmoil within the Roman Empire from the early 200s to Diocletian's accession in 285 CE. The death of Marcus Aurelius in 180 CE led to the end of Roman prosperity and expansion. The death 30 years later of Septimius Severus in 211 led to civil war, calamity, and an era described as iron and rust. Diocletian enacted reforms that were the most invasive since the original founding of the empire by Augustus almost three centuries earlier. Because of Diocletian's extensive reforms, his transformation of the empire, the empire in the West endured for nearly another two centuries. That of the East, where Diocletian was formerly based, took another 1,200 years of life. After ruling most of Europe, northern Africa, and parts of the Near East for 300 years, the Roman system at the accession of Diocletian was creaky at best and unable to withstand the advent of weak emperors. As the seminal Roman historian Adrian Goldsworthy states in his Why Rome Fell, quote, Augustus had created a system that veiled the power of the emperor. It was not a clear constitutional position, and there was no formal arrangement for succession, unquote. Thus, when a victorious general desired power, or his troops did, emperors were made or destroyed at will. The system worked with strong emperors such as Trajan or Marcus Aurelius, but its weaknesses were evident with the likes of Alexander Severus and his ineffectiveness. One of the first and most critical changes enacted by Diocletian was acknowledging that a single emperor could no longer govern. German incursions in the West coupled with a resurgent Sassanid Persian Empire in the East, meant that there would need to be a division. Diocletian went even further, adopting a tetrarchy or rule of four. You see, what Diocletian faced in the 280s was a crisis that required vast changes and transformation of the governmental system that Diocletian had inherited. Now, let's jump about 200 years after Diocletian, and to look at one of his successors. Justinian had had a few bad years. Justinian did not rule a unified empire because about 80 years before his reign, the Western Roman Empire had fallen in the year 476. Justinian ruled a still thriving empire when he took the throne in the 530s. So much so, he began a massive building program, infrastructure maybe, to improve his realm. Though Justinian identified with the past Romans, his empire was different. For example, they spoke Greek, not Latin. And hence, historians rename this entity the Byzantine Empire, not the Eastern Roman Empire. Under Justinian, the Byzantines ruled modern-day nations such as Turkey, Greece, Macedonia, Serbia, southern Hungary, and Romania, Libya, Egypt, Israel, Lebanon, and Syria. Now, what constituted, though, his few bad years? To regain control over the original Roman Empire, Justinian dispatched his general, Belisarius, to conquer Africa, Italy, and even take a shot at Spain. The problem was the Sassanid Persian Empire then invaded him. But what really curbed the prosperity of his realm was the plague. 
And this was the plague, so named the Plague of Justinian, that went from 541 to 549 CE. In one year, one year, the population of his capital, of Constantinople, decreased by 200,000 people. And this plague killed approximately 40% of the city's inhabitants and caused the deaths of up to a quarter of the Eastern Mediterranean's human population. Now contrast this real crisis of Justinian with the COVID-19 pandemic. Now the pandemic, and I don't mean to, to downplay the impact of this pandemic, it's clearly very important, and it has killed 2.9 million people. This figure represents about three-tenths of 1% of the 7 billion people in the world today. If the plague of Justinian were applied to today, the death count would be close to 2 billion people. That figure is almost beyond the concept of us. I, I, I can't even imagine that kind of a horror. And yet that's what Justinian had to encounter. And that was a crisis. Beginning in the late 1500s, formerly divided Japan was unified under the Tokugawa shogunate. The governmental system was known as Bakufu, and it was the primary government of Japan for almost 250 years after 1600. Now, beginning in the late 1700s, after the system had been around nearly two centuries, the system became severely strained. Agricultural production lagged in comparison to the mercantile and commercial sectors. Samurai and daimyo did not fare nearly as well as the merchant class. Despite efforts at fiscal reform, mounting opposition seriously weakened the Tokugawa shogunate from this mid-18th century point to the mid-19th century, when years of famine led to increased peasant uprisings. And then, in March 1854, American Commodore Matthew Perry sailed into Tokyo Bay and, under the threat of his nine modern ships, drove the Treaty of Kanagawa with the Japanese government that opened trading ports to Americans and permitted the establishment of a U.S. consulate in Japan. This document was the first of a series called the Unequal Treaties. Both the internal unrest at home and the new pressure from abroad created a challenge that eventually ended the shogunate in 1867. This was a crisis. It was a crisis within Japanese government that required extensive change and transformation. So I provide these examples of crises ranging across the centuries and across the globe as an examples of things that compelled radical change upon governmental systems, and therefore it's not as new as we have just seen, nor was it in the United States. Some emergencies such as the southern state secession in 1861, were forced upon the existing government and compelled leaders such as Lincoln to literally go to war. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor certainly fits here as well. And other historical examples, such as an address to the Great Depression of the 1930s, were instituted specifically to address an economic crisis. The response to this particular crisis, the New Deal, was arguably the wrong approach, as 30 years earlier, President Grover Cleveland's response to a similar crisis in 1894 proved that a more measured response was more effective in ending the depression that resulted from the Panic of 1893. Yet, 
This does not change the fact that the depression of the 1930s, in which unemployment reached almost one-third of all workers within the United States, was a real crisis. All of these situations, the Civil War, the, the Depression, the advent of World War II, these were all real crises. Now, the concept of governmental intervention in a radicalized program meant to transform government, transform society, was changed in the 1960s when President Lyndon B. Johnson created the Great Society. The Great Society was enacted in the light of economic prosperity. Johnson's program was the first time in the republic's history when a vast expansion of governmental intervention and authority was enacted in a time that was not in crisis. The imposition of new regulations and the creation of Medicare and Medicaid were certainly done not in the light of creating equality of opportunity for women or African Americans. In this regard, Johnson made a template. The challenge, however, for would-be Johnsons is that the failure of the Great Society to, quote, end poverty, unquote, and the end of the boom correlated with this program and the rise of Ronald Reagan in the conservative movement made Americans wary of such expansions. Therefore, the left had no choice but to build artificial constructs or simply put fake crises to enact their ever-expanding agendas. For the past two decades, the left has seized upon the concept of crises to enact programs and legislation that would not be passed without the concept or idea of crisis. Contrast it with Bill Clinton. Clinton ran in 1992, and his primary responsibility was not fundamental restructuring, but rather what he perceived were those not involved in general prosperity. Quote, raised in unrivaled prosperity, we inherit an economy that is still the world's strongest, but is weakened by business failures, stagnant wages, increasing inequality, and deep divisions among our people, unquote. Had Clinton proposed transformational change after declaring we had, quote, the strongest economy, unquote, would have seemed odd. And in fact, Clinton would make statements today that would make him a stranger in the Democratic Party. Quote, it is time to break the bad habit of expecting something for nothing from our government or, our each, or each other. Let us all take more responsibility for ourselves and our families and our communities and our country. To renew America, we must, we must revitalize our democracy. Unquote. For decades, the left preached that classism was one of the great ills of our nation, but the relative mobility of our people and the obvious prosperity, as alluded to by Clinton, made this a tough sell. So they pivoted to something real, the racism that has existed in this nation since the founding. However, many conservatives would argue that figures such as Barack Obama or even self-made billionaire Oprah Winfrey point to the progress made by African Americans and that though additional changes may be warranted, they should be moderate in nature and not transformational. Yet, Clinton's incremental approach fails to do two things, garner votes and drive donations. Fear is quite a motivator, and thus, the left has changed the narrative, 
Our society converts from a place where a black man or woman can now become president, and one actually will in about roughly 18 months, to a hellhole where police are hunting down black youths. Legislatures in Georgia are trying to suppress minority voting, and secret cabals of whites are conceiving ever new ways to oppress. Recently, Joe Biden cited that Georgia voting law as, quote, Jim Crow on steroids, unquote. The real Jim Crow was the time in which blacks attempting to vote were beaten, and lynchings in the South occurred at a rate of nearly one per week. In Biden's worldview, on steroids would be what, two or three lynchings per week? This view is obviously ridiculous, but Biden and the left need to create a crisis, whether one exists or not. In response to the financial meltdown of 2008, Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, famously stated that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. But what do you do if you wish to transform society and there is no crisis? Even in Johnson's day, his 1964 election was a landslide, with him getting over 60% of the popular vote, over 60%. And in the Electoral College, the count was 486 to 52. And he enjoyed super majorities in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. There was no crisis, but at least Johnson could claim a mandate. Today, Joe Biden won with 51% of the vote. The Senate is split at 50-50, and the Democrats hold just six more seats in the House of Representatives than the Republicans. Since there is no mandate, the only way to push through an agenda more ambitious than even Obama's, the most ambitious since Johnson, is to create a crisis even when none exists. Some people might say, how could you claim no crisis, hunger, racism, and COVID? What about those? Frequent listeners know I like to go back to those ancient and long-forgotten times of our, well, our great-grandparents. They had little electricity, almost no indoor plumbing, very few medicines, and often went without food. True food insecurity. And they lived on farms. Five days of rain constituted not a canceled paddleball game, but a possible loss of crops and famine. But their lot was not that dissimilar to those generations that came before, I don't know, about four to 5,000 years worth. This piece is not a screed about loving what you got, but it is a screed aimed at the entitled little trolls among us who have never known real hunger, real war, real famine, or even a real pandemic. Try the plague of Athens, the Antonine plague, the bubonic plague, or the innumerable diseases and sicknesses that have plagued humanity for all of its existence roughly until the middle part of the 20th century. That was the time when antibiotics came on the scene, and that was true healthcare revolution. Those instances in our history, the time of political instability, of famine, of plague, of wars, those constituted real crises. Let me talk to you today about something that is considered to be a crisis of today, and that is allergies. Today, an increasing phenomenon is that developed societies are building increasing susceptibility to allergies, and some of these, such as peanut allergies, were unheard of a century ago. 
Considering the following biology related to our society, this from the BBC, quote, there is no single explanation for why the world is becoming more allergic to food. But science has some theories. One is that improved hygiene is to blame as children are not getting as many infections. Parasitic infections in particular are normally fought by the same mechanisms involved in tackling allergies. With fewer parasites to fight, the immune system turns against things that should be harmless, like some types of foods. And another idea is that vitamin D can help our immune system develop a healthy response, making us less susceptible to allergies. But most populations worldwide do not get enough vitamin D for several reasons, including spending less time in the sun. In the U.S., the rate of vitamin D deficiency is thought to have almost doubled in just over a decade, unquote. Now think about this crisis. There's three issues behind it. Improved hygiene, fewer infections, and less time in the sun. And that time in the sun, all of those ancestors who spent all that time in the sun, that was them more than likely doing backbreaking work such as bringing in harvests or driving herds of domestic animals. This is not a crisis that should be celebrated. It is an issue and it should be addressed because some kids have reactions to nut allergies and it can actually be fatal. It is definitely something that needs to be addressed. It is something that should be met head on. But in the history of humanity, this is not an utter crisis. Now, people are attracted to the bad rather than the good. As Chris Steyerwalt of The Dispatch noted, quote, no reporter gets a Pulitzer for reporting on the 4,000 planes that successfully landed last Tuesday, unquote. And so it is with crises. When small children are asked what they wish to be when they grow up, one hears an astronaut or a firefighter. Note, there is inherent risk in these jobs and thus a patina of glory. No child says he wants to be a marketer, a copywriter, or the help desk supervisor for software companies. Not that these jobs are not necessary or important. They are the backbone of society. But where is the glory? We impel our college students to, quote, change the world, unquote. But one cannot accomplish that in a vacuum. One needs the crisis. The irony of all this is, is that we do face a crisis in this country, a very real one. The Byzantine slow decline was not just due to wars in Italy or the Persians or later the, Islamic, the Islamic armies that poured out of Arabia in the 600s. Instead, the Byzantines were unable to contend with these threats because they ran out of money. Now, I like to joke that the rapper Jay-Z is an American philosopher, but the lyrics from his Reminder song are prophetic. Quote, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. Unquote. The one number that is not a lie is our national debt. Leftist economists are twisting themselves into pretzels trying to justify the spending blowouts enacted since 2000. And part of this is a crisis because neither party seems willing to do anything about it. As of this writing, every single American, men, women, and children, black and white, Asian and Latino, all owe $85,000 each. That's every single one of us, from babies to the elderly. 
Now compare this with per capita wealth held by an adult in the United States of $450,000. Sounds like a lot of money, right? This means that 19% of our wealth today is not our own. It is debt owned by the federal government. On top of this, another $2 trillion of debt is owed by the states. So every single American, through their government, owes about 22% of their wealth to governmental payouts. Well, that kind of sounds manageable, right? Except that each American also carries personal debt. A recent report shares that 77% of American households have at least some type of debt. And that total personal debt of all U.S. households is another $15 trillion. This spread out about around 120 million households. By adding this to the $28 trillion owed by the government, and then adding Biden's additional $4 trillion of spend, by the way, it is not infrastructure, it is a progressive agenda meeting, and now the total debt is $142,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States, or over 30% of real wealth is debt. With payment on that interest, there is simply no way to meet this obligation. And a quick word about that payment on the interest. Right now, interest levels are at record lows and have been for the better part of two decades. That is not sustainable. A simple 4% increase of interest rates would accumulate to almost 40% of federal government outlays simply to pay interest on that massive debt that I just managed. Think about that. All of those wonderful things that we do with our transfer payments, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, defense, and infrastructure. And again, by infrastructure, I mean roads and bridges, not the, not the broadening definition of that. All of that gone because 40% of that budget has to just service the debt. This is a crisis. And in response to this position today, the right mimics the left with their Flight 93 concepts. I get it. The inflaming of passions is part of the program of politics. Motivated followers not only show up to vote, they give money, they volunteer, and they convince others to participate in a like-minded fashion. And think about it. In the 1950s, the most successful politician of the day, his slogan was, I like Ike. But it just does not cut it in today's environment. Nothing like police will kill you or the world will end. This latter to compel a program such as the Green New Deal. The difference is the programming itself. It was one thing to scare you about another politician to get your candidate elected. It is quite another to scare you about an entire system based on a corrupt history so that once elected, your guys can transform that system to their liking. Incidentally, you can use the crisis to put in a system that invariably and inevitably keeps getting your candidates elected. A majority of Latinas vote Democrat. Let's open borders and create a faster path to citizenship to obtain more voters. Once people get an entitlement, they want to keep it. So let's create more of those and keep electing the people who keep enacting the entitlements. Do we have industries that favor us? Let's create infrastructure bills that favor those industries while inhibiting those that do not. Wait, 
infrastructure such as building bridges is nearly impossible due to bureaucratic and regulatory red tape, then let's redefine infrastructure to mean any investment in the United States. And most spurious of all, African Americans have been the most solid voting bloc for the Democrats since the 1960s, but they are starting to move away from the party. Very small, very incremental, but starting to look at alternatives. So let's scare the hell out of them with stories about roving gangs of police that roam cities to find and kill black people. And all of this is bad enough. But the most spurious part of the never-ending crisis is that when a real one arises, such as the rise of China, what do we do with immigrants dying on our borders or the hollowing of our financial structure due to runaway spending? We will not know what it is until it is too late. And that state of affairs is a crisis all in itself. This is Bell Avis. Thank you for listening to the Conservative Historian Podcast.